Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to what will hopefully be our usual one story, one to two episodes per story each week. I know the past couple of months have been a little wacky. I was slow going through December and I got back to things in January and got completely stuck on one story. What's her face? Oh, yeah, Patricia Esparza. That seemed to take way longer than it should have. But then again, I guess I had a lot to say. Then on Patreon, my episodes on Ray Rivera took two parts and a total of four hours to say everything I wanted to say about that as well. So I guess I'm never really going to know until I get into writing these things how long they're actually going to be. But what I'm going to do from now on is if I start to sense that these are going to exceed two hours, I'm going to split them into two parts. I just started feeling too fatigued recording episodes that get much longer than an hour and a half. I can tell that I start talking faster at the end and I don't want to keep doing that. I start making mistakes or I'm sounding out of breath where I really want this to be a relaxing listen. I don't want to sound like I'm all rushed and stressed out. I want to relax and I want you to relax. So I'm going to try to focus a little bit more on what I'm saying and how I'm saying it. I'm going to keep an eye on the duration of the episodes and when I get to a place where I think we can break these up into two parts, I'm going to do that more often and it will help take some of the pressure off recording such lengthy episodes. I want to take the time to thank you all so much for the great feedback for the January and February episodes on Patreon, the bonus about Ray Rivera. If you have not yet checked in on Patreon, for only a dollar you can get California Dreaming's unique take on what we think may have happened to Ray, the 32-year-old aspiring filmmaker who fell from the top of the Belvedere Hotel in Baltimore, landing onto the roof of an adjacent building, falling through that roof where his body lay undiscovered for eight days. He was the subject of Season 1, Episode 1, the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. With the new annual subscription option, we have reached a new high with subscribers for the month of February. Many of you opting to take the 15% discount when you purchase the entire year. And of course, it obligates and motivates me to continue to create for you throughout the year. So if we can get a handful of annual subscribers each month, that alone can pretty much sustain the show on its own and there won't be any need for other means of monetization. February by far has been my biggest month on Patreon, and it's something I'm extremely proud of and grateful for. So I'd like to take the time to thank James H., Karen C., Francis J., Stacia H., Michelle R., Logan M., April G., Shauna G., Jennifer F., Marsha M., and Jane G for jumping in on the annual subscriptions to Patreon, and Christina S, Arturo M, Susie, Leah, Jerry S, Kathleen T, Deborah M, Denise M, Stephen B, and Jennifer S for either joining recently or recently raising your pledge to the next tier. Your support of the show means the world to me, so thank you again so much. So based on the title of this episode, many of you may recognize the story already. But if you don't know, you'll get to know it really well. And I guarantee 
After you hear this, you will never forget it. And I also want to take the time to give a shout out to TZ Borden. He is the host of Tapes from the Dark Side podcast, where he takes a deep dive into this case in his debut season of his podcast. His show is excellent. I binged season one in just a couple of days. I had not listened to anything about this case previously. And when it was recommended to me, I took one look at some of the details and I was like, oh, hell no, I can't even, I don't want to touch this case. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But when I listened to the show and I heard Dylan's mom speak about her son and her desperation to know what happened, it really broke my heart. And if there was ever a way that a parent should be acting when their child goes missing, this woman is exactly how we envision that parent should be. Her sadness and her fear, her anguish and despondency, her tears, it really tears you up inside. All the parents that just didn't act right when their kids were missing or died, Casey Anthony, Diane Downs, Darlie Routier, even Patsy Ramsey, we all look at them and we point fingers and we're like, there's something not right about them. There's something suspicious about all of them that people pointed out and they never really let go of. But anyway, without further ado, let's get started with this special vacation series episode out of the state of Colorado once again. This 172nd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Dylan Redwine. For those of you who have heard this case and know some of the details already, then you know that there is going to be some very graphic talk about a particular fetish known as coprophilia. It's a sexual fetish that involves coming in contact with feces in a variety of ways, touching, feeling, smelling, tasting, all of those things which are meant to bring about sexual arousal. It has a clinical name, which I learned from the Tapes from the Dark Side podcast. I never heard of it before. I mean, I knew of it. There was that viral video some years back involving a couple of girls and a cup. And I cannot even believe that I'm talking about this. It's really uncomfortable and nobody likes talking about it. The pictures are going to come up as we go along here. So I'm just going to bite the bullet now and tell you what these pictures showed. And then from this point forward, I'm going to do the best that I can to keep the details about the coprophilia to a minimum. You've been warned for the next 30 seconds. Listener discretion is strongly advised. And if you're eating right now, you might want to skip ahead. The pictures are of the father in the story, Mark Redwine, wearing women's clothing, as well as wearing a diaper and a baby bonnet, and eating what appears to be feces out of a diaper. There, I said it. We don't need to say it again. They are now going to be referred to as compromising pictures. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's sort out the Redwine family. Mark Redwine was married to Elaine. At the time, her name was Redwine, but she's since remarried, and she has taken the name of her husband, 
and goes by Elaine Hatfield. She and Mark had two sons, Corey, who was 20 at the time this story takes place in 2012. I didn't dig too deep to try to find his date of birth, but it was likely around 1992 if I did the math right. That's a ballpark estimate. And their second son was born seven years later on February 6, 1999. His birthday would have just passed this month. At the time this story takes place, Dylan was 13, a couple of months away from turning 14. So there was a pretty big gap between the brothers and pictures of Dylan. If you've seen them online, he's such an adorable kid. My own daughter was born in 1999, about six months after Dylan, the last of the 90s babies, the last of that millennium. I'm going to provide you with a timeline of the story based on information I gathered from the Dylan Redwine Journey for Justice Facebook page. It says that these are the facts as they know them to be based on events known to Dylan's family, statements by the La Plata County Sheriff's Office, and statements gathered from a number of media sources. Whoever put this timeline together isn't clear, but it sounds like it's somebody very close to the family, possibly even Dylan's mom, but I really am unclear as to who wrote the timeline. We have added a plethora of information to this existing timeline. The information is fact and can be proven. On September 21st, 2012, there was a custody hearing in La Plata County Court in Durango, Colorado. Judge Dickinson had an in-chambers conversation with Dylan regarding custody. After this private conversation, the judge granted full custody of Dylan to Dylan's mother, Elaine Hatfield. Immediately after losing custody of Dylan, and on this exact same date, Dylan's father, Mark Redwine, purchased a one-way ticket for Dylan to visit him on November 17, 2012. So, the implication here is that it is notable that he purchased only a one-way ticket as opposed to a round-trip ticket. And that from the beginning, that there was a plan in place for Dylan to never fly back home to his mother. They lived within the state of Colorado, so it was necessary for Elaine to put Dylan on a plane by himself to fly him out to his dad's. Unfortunately, his older brother Corey didn't go with him. He didn't have to. He was already over the age of 18. And based on what we're going to find out about Mark, it's going to be easy to understand why he didn't want to go. And it seems as though he had responsibilities of his own work and stuff like that. He couldn't just up and fly out of town on a whim. So Dylan ended up going alone and he didn't want to go either. But this visit was court ordered. So even though Dylan didn't want to go, he had no choice. There was a time while visiting with his dad over the summer of 2012 when Dylan was using his dad's laptop to upload some pictures he had taken to his computer when he accidentally stumbled across some pictures of his dad in his computer. These are those compromising pictures. Based on what I've learned of this case, it sounds like he may have taken pictures of these pictures and sent them to his brother back where he was living 
and that the two of them had conversations about these pictures together, but they did not talk to their mom about them. At least that was my understanding. Obviously, Dylan was disturbed and disgusted with the pictures. And like Teasy said in his podcast, I'm not even going to sit here and try to kink shame anyone. What people do in the privacy of their own home is their own business. But you know, when you do that sort of stuff, you need to password protect your computer, especially when you know your kids are going to come over to visit. For purposes of this episode, I'm not going to do any research into coprophilia beyond what I listened to on tapes from the dark side. And all that I learned from there is that there isn't all that much research about it because it is so rare and one of the most well-known historical figures in history who did do this was Adolf Hitler. I did not know that. And that's just an example of how deep TZ is willing to go in his podcasts places where this girl is not willing to go. Now, these pictures have not ever been directly addressed publicly by Mark Redwine. Elaine, his ex-wife, has for the most part chosen to take the high road. She didn't even bring it up when they appeared on Dr. Phil. If she did, then it was edited out. Lots of stuff gets said on those TV shows that ends up on the cutting room floor. But she has talked about it. It's super uncomfortable for her. It's very taboo. And nobody seems to be able to sit here casually shooting the shit about this stuff. No pun intended. But in some capacity, Mark has made a variety of explanation as to what these photos were all about. He has said that they were photoshopped, which nobody believes. Then he has said it was some sort of crazy out-of-this-world Halloween costume idea that he came up with. Nobody believes that either. Then he said he planted those pics in his computer to try and catch Dylan using his computer when he knows that he's not supposed to be on it. And nobody believes that either because, like I said, it's very easy to password lock your computer to keep your kids out of it. Very simple, especially when you're all about that coprophilia life. The fact of the matter is, is that people believe that Mark Redwine has extreme fetishes that are so rare that there are no science-based research articles about this. And I don't think anyone is lining up to try to be the first one to try and talk to these people. The people we know who are into this stuff for sure, Mark Redwine, who I'm fairly certain you will grow to strongly dislike as we move along through this episode, and Adolf Hitler, and two girls who really couldn't find anything better to do with a cup. These are our research subjects. Yeah, let's move along. Nothing to see here. So Dylan told the judge at the custody hearing in September that he saw these pictures. Corey saw them too. But the judge ruled at that hearing that Elaine would be the primary custodial parent and Mark would get visits. And the first visit would be over the Thanksgiving holiday, which was two months away. Despite Dylan's reluctance to go because of the pictures that he saw of his dad, the judge still made the decision to order the visit. And that's going to come up towards the end of this. 
Was that a bad call on the part of the judge? I've talked about it to TZ. Hindsight, it gets it every time, you know. When bad things happen, we think back on all the steps that we could have, should have, would have done differently to have a different outcome. But it's just out of our hands and out of our control. Were the things Dylan was telling the judge troubling and disturbing enough for the judge to have intervened on Mark's parenting time? We know how family courts can be about making sure both parents get a fair shake when it comes to their children. Mark Redwine is a long-distance truck driver, so he was on the road a lot. And when he and Elaine shared joint custody, he was not always available to take advantage of his parenting time. It was just the nature of his job, no fault of his own. He could have worked out a better schedule. He could have tried harder to make the time. It doesn't seem like he made all that much of an effort. But from the manner in which Corey has spoken to his dad having talked down to him, particularly in that Dr. Phil episode, which we will discuss a little bit later on, it's clear that there is no love loss between father and son. The bottom line is the judge ordered the visitation to happen anyway, and that day Mark bought Dylan a one-way ticket to visit him. Mark lived in Bayfield, Colorado. This is located in the southwest part of the state. On a map, Colorado appears to be a rectangular-shaped state with four straight sides. While that's what it looks like, I actually looked it up, and the truth is, when you count all of the Judson Jukes that were made when the land was being surveyed, Colorado actually has 697 sides. But when you zoom out far enough, it starts to look like a rectangle. And I really looked this up. The polygon is called a... Hexa-hecta-ana-con-takai-heptagon. There are people at universities that come up with names for every polygon out there, and that is the name for the 697-sided polygon that is the state of Colorado. But for us simple-minded folk, Colorado is a rectangle, and if you want to be fancy, a quadrilateral, and that is 10 minutes of my life that I will never get back. So Bayfield is located in the southwest corner of the state, not too far away from the northern border of New Mexico. Dylan lived in Colorado Springs, which is about a five and a half to six hour drive. So and when I looked at the maps, there didn't seem to be a good, efficient way of getting there by car. So flying would make sense, especially if he was going to have to travel alone. Colorado Springs is more towards the center of Colorado, slightly more east, slightly more south of a direct center. A flight, as the crow flies, is only about 70 minutes. So TZ was under the impression that Elaine cannot wallow in hindsight with all the what-ifs she could be asking herself for the rest of her life. This is not her fault. There is nothing she could have done differently that would have changed the trajectory of what would ultimately happen to her son. I can imagine sitting there thinking about what if the judge hadn't made that ruling? What if Corey had gone with him? I mean, that's scary too, because who knows? Maybe we'd be talking about two victims here instead of one. I don't know. It's going to haunt me throughout this episode, but I'll try not to dwell on it. All the what ifs. 
I tend to do that when I see things that happen are so preventable, especially when there are red flags everywhere, and they were everywhere, and nothing could be done. The visitation was ordered. So it was set for Dylan to travel there by plane on Saturday, November 17th, 2012. In the two months between the court hearing and the time Dylan was supposed to fly to his dad's, Dylan had told one of his family members that he had hardly any type of communication whatsoever with Mark, not by phone or by text. I can't imagine why Dylan wouldn't want to be chatting away with his dad on the daily, right? (sighs) So gross. Every time we talk about Mark, we're going to have the thought of those pics pop into our heads, unfortunately. TZ has mentioned that he's seen at least one of them in some capacity. There are some Mark hate groups out there, and he thinks that Corey might have some pictures too. After reading through all the documents related to this case, I believe Corey has them as well. But if you all want to go poking around, be my guest. As it turned out, the November 17th flight was canceled and Dylan was rescheduled to fly out the following day on Sunday, November 18th, 2012. Dylan had plans to spend that night at his friend Ryan's house that night of the 18th. Dylan arrived at the Durango airport at 5.46 p.m. that afternoon and he was picked up by Mark. All of this has been verified by surveillance video. At 7.05 p.m., they go to the Walmart near the airport. This is also verified by surveillance video footage. It was around this time that Elaine sent a text to Dylan asking him if he made it okay and if he was with his dad. Dylan replied that he was and he ended his text with a frowning emoji. At 7.22 p.m., Mark said that he and Dylan went to a McDonald's drive-thru for dinner. Mark has stated in interviews that he wanted to go to a place to sit down for dinner to talk. I mean, we all want to do that right about now, right? But Dylan didn't want to. Dylan wanted McDonald's and he wanted to eat in the car on the way back to the house. This was something that irritated Mark and it is clear in the interviews that he has given that he was annoyed by this. You can hear him in the audio of him talk about this on tapes from the dark side. Obviously, from the title, you've probably guessed, much of the audio related to this case is played on TZ's podcast. That evening, with his friend Ryan through text messages, Dylan rescheduled his plans to go over the next morning instead of spending the night. As it turns out, it was getting close to 8 p.m. and Mark didn't think it was right for Dylan to be going over to his friend's house like that on a Sunday evening, so Dylan decided to go over as early as possible the next morning. In the text messages, they make plans for Dylan to come to Ryan's grandmother's house at around 6.30 in the morning so they can hang out. And then all electronic messages from Dylan's phone comes to a stop at 9.37 p.m. that Sunday night. No other messages or calls are ever made from any of his devices. He was using his iPod Touch at the time to send messages and not his phone. The last communication on his actual phone was shortly after Mark and Dylan arrived at Mark's house that evening, 
And this was according to Mark's account of the events of that night. So here we have Dylan going dark at 9.37 p.m. on the night of November 18th, 2012. On Monday, November 19th, remember that Dylan had made plans to get to his friend's house at 6.30 that morning, assuming that he was going to ask his dad for a ride. It's pretty clear to me that Dylan really wanted to see his friends and the text messages between them made it clear that they were going to follow through on these plans. When Mark got up that morning, he said Dylan was asleep on the sofa. I believe that's what he said and Dylan wasn't waking up. He tried to make some noise to get him to get up and he just assumed he was tired from traveling the day before. So Mark said he left the house around 7.30 that morning to run some errands and then returned back to his house around 11.30. So he says that morning he was gone for four hours. He said he went to his payroll office and to his divorce attorney's office, and both of those trips have been verified by law enforcement investigations. Around 10 a.m., Dylan's friend Ryan sent a text to Dylan that said, Come to Nando's. We can assume that Ryan is still waiting on Dylan to arrive, but probably not too worried yet. 6.30 is kind of early to get going. Maybe Dylan decided to leave a little bit later. It's also November and it's very cold. When Mark arrived back at his house at 11.30 that morning, he did say that he found that Dylan wasn't home. He said his phone and everything that he brought with him when he arrived from his mom's house were all missing, along with the fishing pole that belonged to Dylan that he kept there at his dad's house for him to use, that was gone also. Elaine made a big deal out of this because if Dylan was just going off to spend the day with his friend, he wouldn't have had to bring all of his belongings that he brought with him. Everything was gone. That meant all of his change of clothes, whatever he used day to day to groom himself, all of his personal effects, his backpack, Everything was missing. Dylan would have had no reason to take all of that stuff with him and a fishing pole. To leave carrying all of this junk on foot made no sense. On the same day that Dylan went missing, Mark sent a child support check. It was postmarked November 19th to be delivered to Elaine from Mark with a check inside of it even though child support had not yet been assessed. The court was still waiting for Mark to provide his financial information. So, what's the deal with that? That's kind of weird, right? It kind of feels like a calculated move to sort of paint himself as the good, responsible, child support paying parent, knowing the chaos that is about to ensue in the very, very near future. What a way to be like, I'm a good dad. I'm a great dad. See, I even pay my child support before the court even tells me how much I'm supposed to pay. I just give money away to my kids because that's the kind of dad I am. Yeah, right. From about 11.30 a.m. to about 2.30 p.m., Mark said that he took a nap when he got home from running those errands. 
He said that he thought Dylan might be outside playing by himself or that maybe he walked to his friend's house. The friend that they're talking about lives almost 6 miles or 9.6 kilometers away. On the surface, walking 6 miles doesn't seem like that big of a deal for a kid, but Elaine did not seem to think that Dylan was the type of kid who would do that, especially in the cold weather that Colorado was experiencing that time of year. Dylan wasn't exactly a high-energy kid. He knew lots of people. Elaine knew lots of people as well in the area they used to live there. Elaine is certain that Dylan would have made phone calls to find a ride to get where he wanted to go. But I do think his initial plan was to go early with his dad. His dad has said that he goes to bed early and he's up early. That's why I assume that Dylan had planned to do that to go when his dad went for the day to start running his errands. So there were a couple of sightings of Dylan from later on that day that he was thought to have gone missing. In the late morning to the mid-afternoon, a couple people reported seeing Dylan walking, but their reports turned out to be unsubstantiated. There is another boy in the neighborhood that looks similar to Dylan, and if you see pictures of him, Dylan that is, he's so cute, but he does look like an average cute kid. He has a very general, nondescript look about him, despite his adorable little face. At around 2.30, a mail carrier reported seeing a kid that looked like Dylan walking around, but again, that too was unsubstantiated. She was unable to positively identify the kid that she saw walking by as being Dylan. Law enforcement tracked down the kid that she actually did see, and they were able to confirm for sure that she was mistaken. She did not see Dylan that afternoon. Nobody saw Dylan, and nobody ever would. But you can see how these types of things are going to throw a great deal of doubt into the case. Like maybe Dylan ran away. Maybe he's just hiding out from his dad. Things like this. And Mark is going to try to ride this out for as long as he can. Because there is the very real possibility that someone saw Dylan that morning of the 18th. And Mark has alibis for that time, so he can't possibly be responsible for the boy having gone missing, right? Mark needs these witnesses to be correct. And unfortunately for him, none of them are. Dylan's friend Ryan began to send text messages to Dylan asking him if he's okay, that his dad was looking for him. He needs to get in touch with somebody, but all of his text messages go unanswered. Dylan is an avid texter. He is always in touch with friends and family through his phone. So for his phone and iPod to not be sending messages for more than 12 hours is highly unusual, which I totally believe. In TZ's podcast, I heard Mark Redwine say that Dylan was tired in the morning and he didn't want to get up because he was up late talking to his friends on the phone or whatever, but that simply isn't true. Everything stopped on Dylan's electronic devices at 9.37 p.m. Around 2.30 or 3 the afternoon of the 19th, Mark began looking for Dylan. He drove to one of Dylan's friends' house who lives near the lake a friend named Tristan. In one interview, Mark said Tristan told him that he had not seen Dylan, but in another interview, Mark said there was no answer when he knocked on the door. So here we have 
one of the early inconsistencies in Mark's story. At 4.10 p.m., Mark got to Nando's house, which is located in Bayfield, to see if Dylan showed up there. He found two of Dylan's friends, Ryan and Nando. They said that they had been trying to get a hold of Dylan all day, but they had not been able to. When Mark left, Ryan sent Dylan a text at 4.15 that said, Your dad is looking for you. Now let's bear in mind that the text from Ryan to Dylan's phone that said, Come to Nando's house came in at 10 a.m. that morning. If Dylan was alive and well and in possession of his phone, how would Mark be aware of this text and how would he have known to go to Nando's looking for him? Just a lucky guess? Perhaps. Sometime between 4.30 and 5 p.m. after Mark left Nando's house, he said he went to the marshal's office to express his concerns that he couldn't find Dylan. While he was there at the marshal's office, Mark sent a text to Elaine to see if she knew where Dylan was. After she received this concerning text from Mark, Elaine immediately called the La Plata County Sheriff's Office to report Dylan missing. Elaine, her fiancé Mike, and her older son Corey left their home in Colorado Springs immediately and headed towards La Plata County to help in the search for Dylan. By the evening of November 19th, the La Plata County Search and Rescue had initiated searches for Dylan Redwine. Also by that night, Mark said that he was cooperative with the police and allowed them to do a preliminary search of his home for any clues as to what may have happened to Dylan. Search dogs detected a scent on the road near Mark's house, but it could not be verified if the scent was Dylan's or not because at the time, there was nothing that belonged to Dylan available at Mark's house that the dogs would be able to catch a scent from. Everything Elaine had sent with Dylan the day before when she put him on the plane to visit his dad was gone. Late in the evening of Monday the 19th into the morning of November 20th, Elaine, Mike, and Corey arrived at the Bayfield Marshal's office. Bayfield is policed by marshals. The town has about 2,600 residents, and there are currently eight deputies that police it. So it's a small town. Dylan's mom, brother, and stepfather spoke to a deputy and communicated their concerns to him about Dylan's disappearance. They next headed over to Vallecito to start searching for Dylan themselves. They began searching close to Mark's house between 1 or 2 in the morning. At that time, they noticed that Mark was home but there were no lights on at his house. The search for Dylan continued into Tuesday, November 20th. Elaine was asked to meet with the search and rescue headquarters, which she did, along with Corey and Mike. Elaine expressed her concerns that Mark had something to do with Dylan's disappearance. They spent most of the entire day in a small room with the head of the search and rescue team, answering questions and providing information that might be useful in coordinating the search efforts. Elaine and several others had made it clear numerous times to search and rescue team members that Dylan would not have run away without calling anyone. He had many people that he would have been able to reach out to for a ride. They used to live there. He had lots of friends. His mother had friends in the area as well. He knew he could connect with any number of people if he wanted to get away from Mark for some reason. The head of search and rescue were in constant communication with everyone who was out in the field searching for Dylan. 
After several hours speaking to the search and rescue team, Elaine inquired as to where Mark had been, and she was told by them that Mark was inside his home and had not left the house. So it becomes very concerning to both Elaine and Corey as to why Mark isn't out there helping in the search effort for his missing son. Later in the afternoon of November 20th, Corey and Mike head back out to the Vallecito area again to continue searching for Dylan. After they spent some time searching, the two of them drove by Mark's house as they headed towards a campground area nearby, and they saw Mark through a window of his home, sitting in a chair, and he appeared to be watching TV. At this time, there did not appear to be any signs of the search and rescue team or law enforcement in the area anymore. And this was about 4 p.m. So this was also very concerning that they've already packed up and left the last place Dylan was ever seen alive. On Wednesday, November 21st, 2012, Elaine, Mike, and Corey arrived early in the morning at the search and rescue offices. The head of the search and rescue advised them to go over to the marshal's office, telling them that the sheriff has begun to consider Dylan to be a runaway. Although it has been stated numerous times that Dylan would not have run away, the person at that time was the lead sheriff office investigator elected to do this prior to ever interviewing any of Dylan's family members except for Mark Redwine. If the investigators would have spoken to Elaine, Mike, and Corey prior to reaching the determination that Dylan was a runaway, they would have learned that Mark had a long history of taking and hiding his children from their mothers. Mark had done this with his children from both of his previous marriages. So here we have one of the biggest, if not the biggest, missteps in the case here early on. Dylan being considered a runaway after taking Mark Redwine's word for it. This would end up costing search and rescue about 10 days where their resources could have been used to search for and possibly find Dylan with him and his belongings possibly intact and still nearby before the place becomes frozen over in the winter months. So we also have here Elaine, Mike, and Corey holding on to the hopes that Dylan is alive somewhere, but being kept hidden from them on purpose in an undisclosed location by Mark Redwine. They see his non-participation in the search effort as a sign that he knows where Dylan is, Otherwise, he'd be out there helping. Maybe. I don't even know if I'd give Mark Redwine even that much credit. So Elaine has chosen at this point to believe Dylan is alive, and it is only a matter of time before Mark finally fesses up as to what he's done and reveal to everyone where he has stashed Dylan. By the end of the day, however, all other potential suspects, meaning registered sex offenders in the area, they were all investigated and cleared as having any involvement in Dylan's disappearance. Also throughout the day, the lake and the surrounding areas were searched extensively by hundreds of volunteers. They searched abandoned buildings, houses, barns, sheds, any place or structure where Dylan might be hidden away to no avail. Also on this day, a mutual friend of Mark's and Elaine's, who was very familiar with the Vallecito area, particularly the area above Mark's house in the direction up the mountain, 
This friend saw Mark and stopped in to offer help and support. As it was thought that Mark should have been in a very distraught state, considering his son had been missing for a couple of days now. But all Mark had to say to his friend is, I think you should stay the F out of this and let law enforcement handle it. Obviously, Mark Redwine doesn't have a clear understanding of his community. When a child goes missing, it is a problem for the entire community. Anyone and everyone who is able and willing to come out to help will come out and help. And the fact that Mark is actually discouraging people from helping and telling everyone to leave it up to law enforcement, which is all of a staff of eight people, possibly even less back then in 2012, is also very telling that Mark wants little to nothing to do with anything having to do with the search for his son. Nor does he want anyone else's help. He is doing the exact opposite of what most parents beg for when their children go missing. They go to the media. They implore people to keep their eyes open. Be aware of what's going on around you. If you see something, say something. But not Mark Redwine. He's telling people to let the cops do the work. Not a very good look for Mark. But if you've seen pictures of the guy, there is very little about this man that is a good look. Dude looks like he's had a rough life. I'll just put it that way. Of course, now we're getting into Thanksgiving. The whole reason Dylan was in the area in the first place. I'm certain that nobody in the family was feeling festive. By Saturday, November 24th, 2012, a specialized dive team was brought into the area. I don't know exactly where this dive team came from, but it was definitely from someplace that was a much lower altitude than the area they were now in to help in the search for Dylan. As many of you know, and some of you outside the United States may not know, Colorado is a state that has a very high altitude across the entire state. It ranges from 3,300 feet to 14,000 feet above sea level or 1,000 meters to 4,200 meters. Denver is known as the Mile High City because its altitude is exactly 5,280 feet or exactly one mile above sea level. And when you get to these altitudes, the air is thinner and this was creating a problem for the dive teams and their ability to breathe for extended periods of time while they search the lake. That, and in combination with the chilly weather that time of the year, each diver could only dive for about 20 minutes at a time before they would need to take a break. And not only that, each diver could only dive once per day. They were unable to find anything in the lake in their first full day of searching. On that day, Mark was spotted on the east side of the lake over on Middle Mountain early in the morning. His presence was reported to the La Plata County Law Enforcement. On Sunday, November 26, 2012, boats with high-tech sonar were brought in and the entire area in front of the dam was searched and nothing was found. A task force was formed and a house-to-house, business-to-business search was conducted. 
Interviews were done at each house and business to see if anyone had any information as to Dylan's whereabouts. Search and Rescue asked Elaine to go back to their home and bring them some clothing that they knew Dylan was to have worn, as well as any blankets or sheets with his scent on them so they could use that for their dogs to try and track his scent. They were having literally no idea what the dogs were following when they left out of Mark's driveway. The family obliged. They went back, got some items that they knew would have Dylan's scent on it, and brought it back for the dogs to search. But they never heard anything back about what those searches revealed or if anything was found outside of Mark's house. So the fear is becoming that the local law enforcement may not be taking Dylan's disappearance as seriously as Elaine feels that they should be. Elaine knows Mark, and unfortunately for us, we are going to get to know Mark too, more than we're going to want to know. And if they understood what kind of person that they were dealing with, if they just have listened to Elaine and her very real concerns about this man, they may have handled this search effort a little bit differently in these crucial early stages. On Wednesday, November 28, 2012, so it's been nine days since Dylan has been missing, law enforcement finally states that they are no longer considering Dylan to be a runaway, and they put out a press release to the media communicating this information to the public. Of course, this is a thing Elaine, Mike, and Corey have been insisting from the beginning. The only person who had been insinuating to law enforcement that Dylan was a runaway was Mark Redwine. And that's because more likely than not, he was going to have a reason to benefit from that if he could get them to believe him. So it took nine days for this 13-year-old to not magically resurface for law enforcement to finally say, okay, okay, we believe you. He didn't run away. He would have turned up by now. So 11 days after Dylan was last seen, on Thursday, November 29, 2012, a search warrant was obtained for Mark's property, which included his house, his trailer, his vehicles. But the sheriff's office was quick to point out to the public that Mark is not a suspect in Dylan's disappearance, at least not at that time. The search of Mark's home by the task force is executed because that was the last area that Dylan was presumably in, and they have to start somewhere. The search was conducted by the FBI and the CBI, which is the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and this is standard operating procedures in missing persons cases. And when I read that, I thought, huh, that's weird. Where was the CBI when John Bonet went missing? As soon as Patsy Ramsey called in that a six-year-old was missing, did the FBI come down and secure the scene and conduct a top-to-bottom search of the Ramsey home? No, I don't believe that that happened. The Ramseys had all of their friends come over to clean up and make breakfast and have coffee while the Boulder police stood idly by and watched the whole entire crime scene get trampled all over. Well, that was back in 1996, right? Maybe by 2012, when Dylan went missing, the FBI and CBI were put in charge of searching potential crime scenes in cases of missing persons because of the clusterfuck that was the JonBenet Ramsey investigation 
And I use the word investigation lightly here. And I realized that the Ramses were going to do what the Ramses were going to do. And law enforcement seemed powerless to control them. I get it. But I feel like that that case sort of set the tone. I wouldn't be surprised if the whole state of Colorado uses what happened in the Ramsey case as a study in what not to do when a child goes missing. Starting with don't let the parents boss around law enforcement. Maybe that's why they were listening to Elaine. But then again, why the hell were they listening to Mark? Put those two side by side and you tell me who looks like they've got a few screws loose. Well, this is a podcast, so there's only so much I could say about Mark, but just Google them. You be the judge. Why are they giving this guy so much credit? Is it just because it's easier to believe that Dylan was a runaway than having to deal with the potential kidnapping or murder in this small town? Maybe it is. Perhaps they are really like small town sheriffs and how they're portrayed on TV. They're like these big old country bumpkins that would rather sit around at the station. I'm sorry, I don't think that about small town law enforcement. That just is the TV portrayal of it. That's why the FBI comes in, though. Some of these small town law enforcement agencies just don't have the resources or the experience. Because sometimes these agencies just aren't equipped to deal with these kinds of serious crimes. They just aren't. Even the Boulder Police, a town with much, much higher population than Bayfield, even they weren't equipped for the kind of case that John Bonet's murder brought about for them. By November 29th, there were about 45 to 50 members of the CBI, the FBI, and the La Plata County law enforcement and other agencies assigned to Dylan's case. On November 30th, 2012, after being encouraged by one of his sons from a different marriage, Mark finally decided to go out and search for Dylan. But shortly after he began searching, he abruptly stopped telling his son that this is stupid, that Dylan isn't anywhere around here, and from there, Mark's search effort for Dylan comes to an end. The same day Mark gave an interview to the media, he gave one at a local video store located in Bayfield to channel KOAT. Then on Sunday, December 2nd, he gave another interview with the local media. In this one, he showed the cameras a crumpled pillow and a blanket that were on the couch where he claimed Dylan was sleeping. But these things weren't there before. Law enforcement had asked for anything with Dylan's scent on it, and there was nothing in the house that Mark was able to provide that Dylan had come in contact with. And then suddenly, there's this pillow and blanket. He could have provided these items if they were, in fact, slept on by Dylan when law enforcement asked for anything that would carry his scent. But he didn't. He purposely hid those items. Mark also pointed out a bowl of cereal on the counter that he said Dylan ate out of. Another thing that Dylan's task force asked for. Anything with Dylan's DNA. Yet Mark provided nothing But then he says there's this bowl sitting here almost two weeks later that Dylan was last seen. Here we have examples of Mark Redwine purposely hiding items that potentially have Dylan's scent and his DNA on them, hiding them from law enforcement. But yet, for some reason, telling the media all about it. Really strange. 
Mark also told the media that the TV was tuned to Nickelodeon, but on weekday mornings, Nickelodeon program is geared towards babies and toddlers, not for teenagers, which if I remember right is true. My daughter and I, we used to watch Disney Channel mostly when she was young, but it was definitely for toddlers only. It was also during the same interview that Mark brought up the fishing pole being missing. So it really sounds like Mark here is trying to do some damage control. He's trying to manipulate the narrative here to make it look like everything went along as usual. And Dylan grabbed all of his things and his fishing pole to head out for the day. I guess. Elaine will say it later on on Dr. Phil that Mark doesn't know his own son well enough to come up with a good lie. If he did, he would know what channels his boy watched and he was definitely not watching Nickelodeon. Now granted, he may have been watching Nick at night and then the programming would have changed over to toddler viewing sometime in the morning. That happens, but who knows? I'm just telling you. I don't believe anything Mark Redwine says, and my advice to you listening is to not believe him either. On Monday, December 3rd, 2012, Mark is interviewed and tells the interviewer that the problem is Elaine. He complains that she is the only person everyone seems to want to listen to and nobody wants to listen to him. I think Mark is getting plenty of airtime in the media and everyone is willing to listen when he's ready to talk. He's always willing to get on camera and make the case as to why people shouldn't be looking at him. He will say over and over again how he wants this case to be focused and stay focused on finding Dylan. But the focus is staying on him and it's only getting worse when the word starts getting around about these compromising pictures. And you know the pictures I've already talked about. The pictures were not the sole reason why the focus shifted to Mark. But they certainly didn't help. He was willing to talk to the media. All the while, the rumors of these pictures began swirling at some point. I don't exactly know when or how, but the media was getting word. And it quickly became apparent that if you wanted to speak to Mark Redwine as a reporter or a journalist, you just could not or would not bring up the topic of these pictures, even though it's like this massive elephant in the room, right? It does detract from the case at hand here, Dylan's disappearance. But it also gives us a glimpse as to the kind of person that they're dealing with here, the kind of person that Dylan was made to deal with. At the age of 13. Can you imagine? I can't even. I don't even want to try. I kind of wish Dylan didn't ever find those pictures. There is a strong possibility that they played a role in what would ultimately happen to him. On December 4th, 2012, this would be Tuesday, just over two weeks since Dylan went missing. The media reported that the family all took polygraph tests. And Mark Redwine is eventually going to come out and start pointing his finger at Elaine as to possibly having something to do with Dylan's disappearance. She will later on say something to the effect of, you know what, 
I wish that I did have something to do with his disappearance. I wish that I did. Then we wouldn't be sitting here wondering where Dylan was at. He would be home. He would be safe. He would be with me. But it was out of her hands. As you know, the judge ruled how the judge ruled. Even though Dylan didn't want to go to his dad's for Thanksgiving, he was compelled to go. And then this happened. And even though he brought up those very disturbing pictures, again, I have to ask, and I keep wondering this, I know I keep wondering it, how concerning were those to the family court judge? I really want you to think about it. I want to bring up this discussion. Is this something that should be taken into consideration when deciding on contentious custody issues? Or maybe the judge didn't believe Dylan? Maybe the story was too outlandish to be believed. I don't know. I don't know what to think when I hear stuff like this. But I definitely know that I would see some red flags here. I mean, Dylan, this is stuff you can't make up. Like, who would make something like this up? If Dylan wanted to say something about his dad to try and get out of going to Thanksgiving, he could have said, oh, he beats me or he abuses me sexually anything but but those pictures i don't even know if a 13 year old mind is capable of even conceptualizing that in their head anyway at the end of the day i guess everybody the judge elaine Corey, everyone just simply underestimated what mark redwine was actually capable of They would have never thought in a million years that something like this could have happened. But anyway, the media reported that Mark's lie detector tests were inconclusive. This information didn't come from law enforcement. Mark has been asked numerous times to take it again, but he has refused. He was offered to take the polygraph again later on on the Dr. Phil show. And Dr. Phil told him that He has the best polygrapher in the country that his guy is the guy who trains the FBI's polygraphers. But Mark not only refuses, he seems to self-sabotage himself by disqualifying himself by drinking. Drinking what seems to be before, during, and after all of his appearances on the Dr. Phil show, which was filmed over the course of two days and was two episodes. Mark told Dr. Phil that he failed the polygraph miserably the first time around. I personally don't think that Mark is in a state of mind at any point to be a quality candidate for a legitimate polygraph to be conducted anyway, if I'm being honest. On Thursday, December 6, 2012, Bayfield law enforcement officially announced that they believe Dylan's disappearance to be a result of an act of foul play. The following day, investigators told the media that the last time anyone has reported seeing Dylan anywhere was the night before he was reported missing. This was the evening his father picked him up from the airport, they went to the Walmart, and they went to McDonald's. On Saturday, December 8, 2012, a large-scale search was launched for Dylan near Durango and consisted of about 500 volunteers. This was the only organized search that Mark Redwine was ever present at, and he would make the claim to the media that he was the first person in line to lead the charge. The search started about 18 miles or 28 kilometers from Mark's home, 
which is adjacent to Middle Mountain. Middle Mountain will become important later on. On Tuesday, December 11th, 2012, a fraudulent call came into law enforcement, a person claiming to have Dylan and wanting a ransom to be paid. This turned out to be a scam. By Thursday, December 27th, five weeks since Dylan went missing, a reward fund that was started for him had grown to $20,000. By Thursday, January 24th, 2013, the reward fund surpassed $50,000. Then there is a notation that Mark Redwine inquired about Dylan's reward fund. What that inquiry is about, I have no idea. But I feel like the implication here is that Mark maybe wants to somehow figure out how to get his hands on the money while informing on the location of his son's remains. And that would just bring this to an all-new low for Mark, right? I can't see any reasons for him to be interested in the reward unless he knew where Dylan could be found. If he could somehow, in a roundabout way, make that information known without exposing himself and then collecting his own missing son's reward fund. Despicable, if true. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and split this episode into two parts so I can get this one out to you. I have the second part already written and ready to record, so this is not going to be a month-long ordeal like Patricia Esparza. Speaking of Patricia, I mentioned that I was thinking that you listening were going to dislike Mark Redwine more than you dislike Patricia Esparza. It's a tight race, right? Well, Mark is going to give us plenty to work with coming up in part two. We will finish up the timeline, and I will take you all the way up to where this case stands as of right now. Stay tuned to listen to a promo from TZ's Tapes from the Dark Side, which will play immediately after this. Thank you for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams. The search for a missing Colorado teen who vanished from his father's home during a court-ordered visit. He's just... The sweet kid every mom dreams of having. You were the last person to have seen your son before he disappeared. Well, and I don't believe that. Dylan had found some pretty disturbing pictures of Mark. The pictures were, quote, disgusting. Him dressed in women's clothing and, and, you know. Eating his feces. Yes. I think everyone has a bit of a fascination. Dark side.